0: Open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to just read verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, follow along as I read, therefore, We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. O gracious Father, we come to you now, and we seek, Lord, thy assistance through your Holy Spirit, to open up our hearts and our minds to the truth of what it is you would have us to learn about thyself, about thou, eternal Son, and the work, the powerful work and preserving work of your blessed Spirit in the text that's before us. Help us to hear the words of Christ. Help us to grow thereby and to love you all the more, for you are worthy of all of our praise, our worship, and all of our affections. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we come to chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And this is only after several weeks, six weeks I think it is. I think we did eight sermons in chapter 1. And all the while in chapter 1, what was being accomplished by this inspired writer, as you well remember, was to highly exalt Christ and Christ alone, particularly the work of Christ's revelation. That is, what He came to reveal that beforehand through the prophets and even through the glorious angels had been hidden or obscure. Christ did that in His earthly ministry, didn't He? He came and He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We saw last week how he was using Psalms 110 to communicate that he was the promised son of David that was going to purge the iniquities of David's people and how his kingdom was going to last forever and ever. And so in Christ's revelation, the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate he is God's final and certain Word to you. Don't double-guess Him. Don't start doubting you know, your former commitment to His Word and believing in His Word. And you remember how He labored beginning with verse number 5 all the way to the end of the chapter of, of going to the Old Testament using the rule of faith to substantiate the truth of His claim that Christ... And Christ's gospel is the certain final revelation and don't you dare ever turn your back upon it. And that is what he's coming down in chapter 2. This portion of really what is a pastoral sermon is what many theologians believe the Hebrews is. It doesn't convey itself like a normal epistle or normal letter. It starts off like a sermon. And he comes here like a faithful preacher to chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, and now he presses upon them, his, his audience, he presses upon them application of everything he just taught them. Everything he just taught them. What he does after this, throughout the rest of the chapter, he begins to talk about in verses 5 through 8, the apex of man and all of creation and how he is supposed to have complete dominion. And then in verses 9 through 18, in dealing with what we call young ones in the church, the humiliation of Jesus, uh, that's meaning his incarnation, his leaving heaven, coming down and suffering, and then him helping and serving the church today as a high priest. That's what he deals with in verses 9 through 18. So that's kind of the outline of where this message to these early Christians is going. It's, he's going to first say, let's stop now. And let's think about everything that I've told you in chapter 1. And after he does this, beginning with verse 5, he talks about man and his role in creation, how he's not able to accomplish it. And then he talks about how Christ come to do what man couldn't do and how Christ is ministering to his people even now as a high priest. Let's recall something as we get into our text today about this audience who's receiving this application of chapter number one of this glorious truth of the final revelation of jesus christ remember that this audience wasn't christians who were wanting to outright reject jesus or the christian faith in other words they weren't ones who were saying Oh, you know, it wasn't like they needed everything in chapter 1 because they were coming to a point of saying, you know what, this was all just a big hoax. And Jesus was a hoax. The gospel that I believe was a hoax. You know what, I'm walking away. I'm apostatizing from this and I'm going back to the religion of our fathers and Judaism and the Old Testament ceremonies, rites and customs and so forth and so on because I was duped. That's not the case. That's not the case. This original audience didn't have a problem, Nolan, with wanting to identify with the name Christian. Didn't have a problem identifying with the person Jesus and His Gospel. What they were doing was taking all of that and wanting to add to it. They wanted to add to the Gospel of Jesus. They had, for whatever reason began to be entertained with the concept that they could remain faithful Christians and somehow, in some way, blend the gospel, join the gospel, amend the gospel with something from Judaism and it still be the gospel. That's who the writer of Hebrews is writing to. And so he comes here to chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and we hear in these four verses that this kind of thinking of amending the gospel, changing the gospel, possibly entertaining another way to do the gospel is absolutely unacceptable. This is an inspired writer of Hebrews mind utter apostasy, apostasy to think this way. We sense in... The sober overtones of verses 1-4. through that The writer of Hebrews possesses the same zeal for the purity of the gospel that the apostle Paul had when he wrote in Galatians 1.8 these words. You remember the Galatian church? They were kind of mixed up too in a different way. They weren't trying to mix the gospel with Judaism. But they were still trying to mix it with something of their own contributions. And Paul told them who were wanting to remain Christians... And wanting to change the gospel, he said, "Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we preached unto you. Let him be accursed." Now go back to verses one through four. Listen to the the writer of Hebrews after everything he's talked about Jesus. Verse 3, what Jesus did, purged from our sins, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should slip. I think that a really better translation of this verse comes through in the NASB and the ESV as I've studied out the Greek. And this is in some of your translations in the church today, you may have this. Listen how they phrase verse 1. For this reason, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. Do you hear the the same kind of zeal for the seriousness of everything that's been talked about regarding Christ and His Gospel that Paul possessed when he wrote to the Galatian church? Don't ever think now, you can begin to think or tamper with what Christ has done and who he is and what the Father's revealed to him. It is a matter of life and death. Take the more serious heed. Pay much more closer attention, lest you drift away. You hear, don't you, that serious overtone, that exhortation in this first four verses of chapter 2. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, gives us two things for the very first time in the book of Hebrews. It gives us, and this is how I propose we unpack it today, it gives us our first command and it gives us our first warning. And these come through all throughout the message of the Hebrews. Now, beloved, what's so precious about, about that is this, is that what he's teaching us is that when we learn these blessed truths in Scripture about Christ and about the gospel, it's not to take what we've learned and soak it all in, tuck it nice and neat in our systematic theologies, and then say, that was a good exercise in biblical faithfulness and excellencies. No, no, no. No. When the apostles, whenever they unpack a glorious truth as inspired by the Holy Spirit... What did they do? They, didn't, they always told the church after they unpacked these deep, mysterious truths, this is how you're supposed to apply it. This is how you now are supposed to live by it. This is how you're supposed to be changed by it. Christianity is not a set of religious prepositions that we have in our heads only. But it's meant to go from our heads to our very heart. And when I say heart, young ones, I mean our experience. We receive these truths. We feel these truths. They change us. And then therefore, we're different people. We're different people. Where one has only but a head knowledge of the truth of Jesus. He was a man historically that lived in time, space, and history. Claimed to be the son of David and that he rose again. They only have a head knowledge, but they don't have a heart knowledge. They have no saving faith. They have no saving faith. You see, what the writer does here is takes all of the wonderful things he said about Jesus. And now he applies it. He applies it. And how does he apply it? Well, first of all, he applies it in a command. In a command. You have a copy of the sermon notes I trust and we're going to consider, first of all, what is the command? Well, the command is is that we must pay much closer attention. The authorized version that I read from said that we ought, you see there, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed. I, 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 I like and I prefer the translation that we must. I think you have it in your notes there, the Greek word that's used that's translated odd in the King James Version, but it's translated must in the modern translation. It's better because it carries with it necessity in reference to what is required to attain some end. It's necessary. You see, the word ought in English today kind of sounds like, well, you know, you ought to pick up you know, your socks off the floor so you can have a happy marriage, right? It's, it's optional. But no, that's not what the Greek carries with it here. It really is a better translation to say, therefore, or because we've learned all of this, we must. It is absolutely necessary. So the command comes with a great imperative, Christian, don't ever think that you can learn all of these glorious things and then just say, okay, that was nice. No, 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 no. You must. It's absolutely necessary. Everything that we've just learned about the gospel and who the truth of Jesus is, to let that be the anchor and the center of your life. In this command, the writer warns those who are tempted to return to the religion of their fathers. And in this sense, it was the old covenant It was thinking that we could take the finished work of Jesus upon the cross that the writer of Hebrews has just established who successfully demonstrated that it was accepted by the Father because He rose from the dead and He was placed as David's greater son at His right hand. And they thought, yeah, but, but, I still need to do this. I still need to do that in order to add to what Jesus has done, in order to make what Jesus has done, stick and stay. You see, they were running the danger of changing the gospel altogether and the writers telling them, you must, you have to by necessity of your very making it to the end, adhere to the gospel that I've just communicated in chapter 1. This is, in other words, a non-negotiable command. It is not advisable, but yet still something you could decide to agree to, uphold, defend, preserve, conserve. No, it's you must. You hear in the command this imperative, not this option. It's absolutely necessary. Give more earnest heed. You hear the language. Pay much attention to the things heard. Well, what were the things heard? He conveyed that in chapter one. These people were already Christians. He's writing to Christians. They had, and, and, and even more so, they were Christians who were converted out of Judaism. They were Hebrew Christians. And so the gospel that Peter, Paul, and all the other apostles were teaching, they were going right into the synagogue and they were showing them the realities of the new covenant, how it was being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the things that they had heard was the passing away of the old covenant and how that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those things. And you must never, the writer saying, ever one time think, that there was one aspect of the old covenant promises that God made to His ancient people that have not been fulfilled in the new covenant reality of Jesus Christ. Now let that sink in for a minute. I'll say it again. They were taught through the preaching of the apostles, there is not one old covenant promise to the ancient people of God that hasn't been fully realized, accomplished, and is being yet fulfilled through the new covenant reality of Jesus Christ. That was the things that they had heard. That was the things that the apostles further confirmed. And according to God's will, not the apostles, we read in the text that He gave them the ability to do miracles and perform signs and wonders. To further substantiate that in Christ and in the apostles, And in the New Covenant Church, all of his promises have been fulfilled. In other words, they would have heard God the Father does not owe anyone anything, even people who are identified as Hebrew. In Jesus, all things have been made fulfilled. So now the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 is telling these Hebrew Christians keep your eye on Christ. Don't you dare turn your eye on Christ. In fact, it is an absolute necessity that you never blink one time to the realities that I told you about Jesus fulfilling everything that in Psalms 110 our fathers were promised. In Jesus, He fulfilled everything the prophets said. His revelation is better. That's what chapter 1 is about. In Jesus, everything that the angels revealed, Jesus is better. He completed it. In Him is all in all. That's why we said in our last message that really a good summary of chapter 1 is Christ and Christ alone. Right? So he's telling these Hebrew Christians who are waffling, who are wavering, who knows who's whispering what in their ears about going back to some kind of old covenant promise, tradition, addition, amendment. No, 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 no. You must fully except what has been revealed in Christ. It's an absolute necessity. It's never an option. You must, you must. Not only, and perhaps because of the way I'm presenting it, you sense that there is, you see secondly in the command, this extraordinary intensity that he's conveying in the way he's uh, wording this. Notice that it says there, give more earnest heed. Uh, The modern translations pay much closer attention. So in other words, the command is not only not optional, but also it goes beyond what commonly was portrayed in the attention of the old covenant people. Well, what was the attention of them? Well, do we really need to trug through all redemptive history to see what type of attention they paid to the old covenant promises that were established through the prophets and even communicated Matt, through angels? We know how they paid attention, don't we? Oh, yeah. I'm born into the nation of Israel. I got the sign of circumcision, so I got the end card. Even though their hearts were far from Him. Right, Nolan? What did the prophets say all the time when they would come? With your lips. With your lips you say his people. But with your hearts, you're far away. You're far away. So they weren't paying very close attention. So he's communicating to them these new covenant realities that I've communicated to you in chapter 1. It's not an option. You must pay extraordinary attention to them. Don't do what they did. Don't do what they did. You know, there is a doctrine in the Bible about paying attention. Uh, this, this, in, this, this intensity, this um, extraordinary concern about what has been heard. Uh, this comes through in, in, in the Greek. This adverb, much more, much closer. Listen how it's used in the New Testament and it's only used by Paul which is another reason why some believe maybe that's why Paul wrote this. There's certain language, certain words that are used that Paul only uses elsewhere in the New Testament. But we dealt with that with our introduction. But listen how Paul uses this same phrase to the intensity of what he wants us to give this message through God, the gospel in Christ. Second Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Paul uses the same adverb to speak of his extraordinary care in his behavior amongst the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, Paul uses this same word to speak of the extraordinary zeal that he once had for the Jews' religious traditions, which led him in advancing Judaism beyond his contemporaries. So in other words, you remember that context there, Paul saying, hey, some of you are saying you're a Paul, some of you are saying Apollos, and hey, don't forget I with extraordinary zeal outperformed everybody. That's the same type of attitude that you guys got to have about what I just communicated to you in chapter 1. The run of the mill, indifferent, check in, check out. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. That's what the text is saying. If you ever fall, beloved, in the ditch where you have a season in your life, And the things of the gospel don't stir you. No matter how good or wax elegant the minister may be. If there ever comes a point in your life where someone's expounding the truth of the ever flowing fount of forgiveness from the cross. And it doesn't move you. It doesn't stir you. It's perhaps because you're not paying attention. Oh yes, you're listening. But you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention. Oh, there he goes again. Talking about the old story. I've heard that 101 times. Can't he say it in a different way? Can't he paint it in a different way? I mean, where's the good illustrations that Charles Spurgeon used for crying out loud? Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament hears of the stories. There were those in the covenant community. They had heard the stories over and over and over and all it did was harden their hearts all the more. But then there were those. There were those who believed those old, old stories. They knew they needed forgiveness. They knew that in that sacrifice it was pointing toward the promised son of David. And whenever they heard their father, whenever they heard their rabbi, whenever they heard the priest talk about the things of God, they were right there on the edge of the seats, brother. And they were paying attention. Why? Because they knew it was absolutely necessary lest they begin to drift away. Lest they begin to drift away. So Paul uses this all throughout the New Testament, this adverb that's translated here, more earnest, pay much more closer attention. But let's consider the duty itself. It's not optional. It's to be done with an extraordinary zeal but what about it, the duty itself, to give heed, to actually pay attention? Now, this is where in my studies it just really unfolded, and I've given, uh, I've given it to you somewhat in your sermon notes there. So this Greek word that's translated in the authorized version as give heed, and, and also in the New King James, it's, it's, convert, it's translated in the modern translations as pay attention. It was used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament and it helps us really to begin to i think apply the duty of the command with extraordinary zeal so it was commonly this give heed or pay attentionly it was most commonly used to refer someone hearkening unto what a person is saying okay so that's one use Hearkening to what someone's saying. Someone's get up, going to get up and say something, or uh, you know, Uncle Jim, or, or Father Aaron is going to lead his family worship, and everyone's going to give heed. They're going to listen. That's how it's used in Acts 8.10. Listen how it's used. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest. So when the apostles were preaching, Nolan, even the young ones we notice in this one, and even the older ones would give heed. They would be paying attention. Here, it is the active, responsive duty of one who desires to gather in all that's being said, despite if they've heard it a million times, which I alluded to earlier. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The duty is, is to give heed, to hearken, no matter how many times you've heard it. But it also carries the idea of devoting oneself to something, not just a, um, a hearkening where you can hear things, Absolutely. Uh, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just giving me or giving someone else who's communicating things of the gospel attention, but it's actually purposefully committing oneself. And that comes through in how this same word is used in 1 Timothy 4.13. The Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy. He said, Till I come back to you, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now, the way that the Greek word used there, it carries with the idea to apply oneself, to attach oneself, to devote your thought and your effort to something, to turn actually your mind mentally to something. That's what he's saying. And so, you see, this word that's translated "give heed" or "pay attention" it has. These multifaceted dimensions to what the actual word means, and 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 so therefore it gives us an array of application of to hear what the, the writer of Hebrews is actually commanding us to do. I'm to yes listen, so I need to be present. Bo, oh, but I'm I'm to mentally turn. I'm I'm, I'm mentally to you know commit myself to pay attention. And it's absolutely necessary. Enough, enough of the running jokes in churches about the half-hearted, sleepy, slumbering member in the church who's just halfway attentive. You, my friend, if you are in that position, and I'm resolved after coming to this study, that I will be like on top of that like white is on rice. I will get with a brother and sister and say, listen, what is it in your life? Are you causing to be hurdles in heeding the command? Because this is not optional. When we are coming under the Word of God and His worship, brothers and sisters, if you're staying up too late watching whatever you're watching, and it's causing you to not be able to mentally be engaged Follow the points. Follow the outline. And believe me, I know sometimes our outlines coming from the pulpit aren't the best. Oh, but now that's all the more reason. you got to pay attention. Right? you going got to come up with your own outline during the sermon. You hear what he's saying, guys? Whatever it is, get it out of the way. Whatever it is. There was an absolutely sad story of a man who, who slept every church service, and his family actually thought it was a joke. It actually was a running joke in their family. Now, I don't think that the Holy Spirit-inspired author of Hebrews here would think that that was very funny. In fact, I don't think the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Hebrews or the Apostle Paul, whoever, would be very popular in any church. Because if they were sitting next to that brother sleeping, they would have been right on top of that, saying, "Dear brother, is it what is going on with you, man? Are you drifting? Are you slipping? This is life and death we're talking about here. Oh, pay much more attention to the things that you are heard that you have heard. Now, to amplify that, listen how this word's also used." in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3 eight, and this will blow your mind. It's also used in a very intensive way of describing addictions. Listen how it's translated in 1 Timothy 3a, the qualifications of a deacon. Likewise, must the deacon be grave, not double-tongued, and here's our word that's translated pay much attention and give heed. It's translated not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy luger. In this light, as the drunkard has an extraordinary single-minded devotion to his habit by which we could all rightly say that man is consumed by that addiction, that wine. That his life, it seems, revolves only around that wine. In fact, it seems to rule his entire life. And he will not suffer anything to get in the way of his desire to consume that thing that controls his life. That, my friends, is the exact same word, idea, construct that the writer of Hebrews is trying to take a stake and just pound and pound and pound. That's why he chose this word that could be unpacked in all those different ways. Because he wants us to see that the new covenant realities that I talked about in chapter 1 with the superiority of Christ and His revelation and fulfilling all the things God promised ought to be the constant focus of your life, as if you're addicted to it. He can't say it in much more stronger language, can he? It's not optional. And oh, shake off anything that's preventing you from being totally consumed by it. Now, before we move on to the warning. The application is very simple, isn't it? When the things of God are being talked about, when um, family worship, and I've already applied it this way a couple times, or even on the Lord's Day at a prayer meeting perhaps, can you rightfully beloved be described as one who understands that no matter how achy I feel, no matter how tired I am it is absolutely necessary oh God give me grace right now to be mentally and fully engaged in what's taking place here because it's the most important thing that will keep me like a ship anchored and rooted in to what you've done and what you're still doing can you be described that way oh boy I tell you if you could only ever spend 10 minutes at the front of a church, especially in a bigger church or a smaller church. You got fingernail clipping going on. Like I said, you're talking about slumbering Sam in the church. Um, You know, just, I know little ones will be little ones. Don't take this the wrong way, but you know what I mean? It's just kind of, you know, not really any attempt to try to get anybody to pay attention you know, here's a, here's a real good idea for us if we have younger ones, and I'm not preaching anyone here. If anything, I'm preaching to my family. How about, how about we make sure that everyone goes potty because we've got small bladders in the families, right? Go potty before the church service. Not three or four times during the church service. You guys get the point, right? I mean, it just... What are we doing? How do we apply that? Can we honestly say that we're paying attention? We're giving heed. Because that's what the text means. The urgency of this exhortation, this command, is now set up against a backdrop of not a hypothetical warning. It's a very real warning. And so let us look at the warning. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed, there's the command, to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. There's the warning. Drifting, slipping. That's why I entitled the message, Beware of Drifting. In the authorized version in the New King James, it's translated this Greek phrase, let them slip. I think that the better translation is carried by the modern ones, which is drift away. Pay close attention. And here's the warning, lest you drift away. So first of all, the danger being warned of is drifting away. This is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek phrase is used and it carries with it the idea of gliding by, of floating by. So it has a nautical type of connotation to it. Kind of like a boat that's not anchored securely or tied off good. It just kind of, not right away, Right? Have you guys ever been uh, like on a little lake and you got a little boat and you didn't really get it up, you know, shore good and it kinda gets carried out there and the next thing you know, somebody Ah hey the boat and you know you gotta go out there in about four foot of water and get it, but you got it, right? Well that's kinda what this term means. It means just kind of slowly and over a period of time, the next thing you know, it's out there on the sunset, and boy, it's in some dangerous predicaments because there's a storm coming now. Ah, now we gotta call the Coast Guard, you know, that kind of situation. So this drifting away, I think, is a better translation. Beware of these things lest you drift away. The danger is very real, as I said. It's not just hypothetical. And that's how the writer is intending it to be. Be careful. Take heed. Listen. Pay attention as if life and death depends upon it because it's necessary lest you start drifting. The clear implication of this text is what we must firmly do in the grace that God gives us is to keep our eye upon Christ and the faith that He's given us to maintain a life or death grip upon the truths of it. Through neglect of the very real danger of being swept away in the currents of our flesh, the devil and this world, like an out-of-control boat, they're very real. It is a Though the warning here of drifting away, using this language that carries with it these nautical ideas, the writer is stressing here that we must have the same earnestness of surviving like a drowning man does. Absolutely non-negotiable. You have to be so attentive to what I've told you, constantly attached to it. It's got to be this in your life. If not, you're going to begin to drift. You hear the earnestness of someone who is drowning. And they'll... Sister Maria, if you were drowning and someone stuck a sword into the lake, despite the injury to your hand, you still would grab hold of it. That's the type of drifting he wants to prevent. He wants... to stay close to the truth. He wants us to stay engaged with the truth. Always be attentive to the truth. This language that's being employed, I think is very helpful in in how it's figurative. Because we too, like vessels on the stream of life, are bound toward heaven. And what happens? The winds of temptation, the uh, undercurrents of old thinking and traditions come along. And then there's the powerful undertow, isn't there, of indwelling sin. And all of these things are working together to do what? Pull us away from the safe shore of what He's established in chapter 1 of Christ and Christ alone. All of these things are working together to drift us away from that truth. Now, we're going to learn in the coming weeks that in verses 9-18... through We know objectively beyond a shadow of a doubt that in Christ we are truly kept safe. Our vessels are guaranteed a safe passage to heaven and we only and can't only depend upon his power and faithfulness to get us safely to the shores of heaven. We'll learn that in verses 9 through 18. But ah, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Christ's promised power and faithfulness which we will learn about are manifested in Scripture as being in accord with and in harmony with fixed laws of how He does things. And this is one of them that we're hearing about right here. The Christian sailor must constantly give earnest heed to the instructions that the master navigator gives. And if you do, if you do, listen. If you do, stay on the course. When you get off the course, you repent and come back on the course. Christ is going to use that to get you safe to the heavenly shores. Oh, true, we will learn in coming messages Christians are kept by the mighty, the mighty, sound like I was from Kentucky down there, but the, the mighty preserving sovereign power of God, yes, we will learn that. But how is that done? Through faith, 1 Peter 1. 1.5. And while we will learn that we are saved by the gospel, which we have formerly heard, they must, as we are learning here today, always keep it in their memories and never turn away from it, 1 Corinthians 15.2. Or to say it another way, as we're going to find over over in Hebrews 3.14, we must hold fast, there's another command, hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It's a necessity. You have to do it. You have to do it. Thus, here in our text today, verses 1 through 4, the drifting away is immediately due to a lack of seriousness and care and taking heed to ourselves and our doctrine of what Christ has done and it's easy to do you're going to doubt yourself you're going to think that you've got to do this or that or that to finish what christ has done there's all types of things that are going to cause you to drift away from what's been established in chapter one and when you begin to drift it's a very real reality that you may drift so far to demonstrate you never knew the truth of chapter one to begin with and you'll just keep drifting and keep drifting. What is the consequence of drifting? Is this just a hypothetical warning or is it real? Believe me, he's not giving the warning as a hypothetical. Just to kind of get you scared a little bit. The consequence of drifting. Let's consider that now of the warning. We know what the warning is of drifting. What's the consequence of drifting? The urgency of this exhortation finds its sober certainty in the comparison to the Old Testament laws. That's why he talks about that stuff. Did you catch all that? Look at verse 2. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, now some of you ain't going to remember this, but we talked about the utilization of angels upon Mount Sinai as them coming, the King, the King Commandments from God, and he used the agency of the angels to actually deliver them. That's what he's talking about here. If the word, the law, spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, you didn't get away with nothing in the old covenant economy. There was a a just retribution for every violation. So the writer's saying, if you think God took that serious, what makes you think that he doesn't take this serious? That's the comparison. That's the consequence of drifting. It's not hypothetical. He's giving a real warning here. Despite all of their privileges, the ancient people of God who had the law, we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and it confirms the Old Testament historical records that the Israelites of the wilderness generation, they perished because they refused to obey God. God smote those who worshipped the golden calf, didn't he? We know from the... Uh, canonicals of, of redemptive history that 23,000 died who worshipped the gods of Moab. Uh, Moab. The Lord sent fiery serpents as judgments on those who loaded the precious bread that He gave them for manna, didn't they? He provided their ungrateful, murmuring hearts water and they still complained. And remember how the ground swallowed up Korah, and the company of the other murmuring rebels that turned against Aaron and Moses. And then we have this insight from 1 Corinthians ten eleven, where we as the church are told this. Now all these things happen unto them for our example. And they were written for our admonition, our warning, upon whom the ends of the world are come. You see, the consequence of drifting is very serious. And the inspired rider doesn't want you ever to become so theologically dishonest with yourself to the point that you become that presumptuous sailor who thinks he doesn't need his navigation charts to tell him the path that he's got to follow in order to meet his destination. The rider doesn't want you to become so comfortable in your presuppositions about how you know you're guaranteed you're saved, that you don't have to double-check your rations and your provisions before you take a long journey in order to get to where you got to go. In fact, I think that becomes very clear by the fact that He includes Himself as one who's being warned. So in the warning, we see, do we not, what the warning is of drifting We see the consequences of drifting, that it is a real serious threat. It's a life and death issue. And then we see who it is being mourned. Oh, heaven forbid that in a Reformed church who has the doctrine, of the perseverance of the saints folded up nice and tucked in their Bibles where it's supposed to be and praise God it is a reality and it is a truth, are hearing this sermon And thinking, I'm glad I'm preserved. I'm glad I'm one of the elect. Boy, you're missing the whole boat. You're not paying attention. (laughs) Part of paying attention is having an openness to what the Word of God is saying. An openness to the truths of where it pushes on certain pressure points in your life. Not that you got the car to get into heaven and you're doing okay and this sermon's for somebody else. No, who is being warned? Well, you have it in your sermon notes. Just look at the text. It's very obvious. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation that was confirmed unto us? We all receive the exhortation not to drift. This Warning is to the pastor. This warning is to the oldest saint in the church who has been walking with the Lord the longest. This warning is to little Naomi who just took the first step of faith and is the youngest convert in the church. We're all susceptible to drifting, brother. Aren't we? And the way you know that's true, It's because you will see manifested in your life like I told a brother this morning I was laying on my bed weeping as I went to sleep thinking perhaps of the drifting that's occurred in my own life, brother. We're all susceptible to drifting. Today in our text, the living God is asking us all a question. What plan do we have if we don't take up the promise and the person of Christ in chapter one, if you don't pay attention, if you don't heed the command to to, to, to life and death, or keep Christ and Christ alone focused and centered in your mind and prevent you from drifting, what is your plan then? When you're standing naked before God, and as the one who gave the Old Testament law and every single violation of it was dealt with to the gnat. What plan do you have? Like you can imagine the writer of the Hebrews talking to these wavering Hebrew Christians. Like guys, what are you thinking? What is your backup plan? If you drift and you, you, you get away from what I've been teaching you in chapter 1 about Jesus... What are you going to say on that day? You're going to say that you, you know, did a lot of good works? Are you going to say, you know, what are you going to come up with? If we turn our backs from Christ, Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, which is the gospel, we cannot hope to be saved by any other means. The warning is real and it's to all of us, Beloved. Be ye warned. Pay much attention. And this is indeed what the writer of Hebrews is going to say later on in chapter 10, verse 26, when he tells them, after Christ, there isn't any longer any sacrifice for sins. It's Christ and Christ alone. So brother, we just have to hang all of our hopes on Christ. Well, there's a clear command here. There is a clear warning. So, what's the remedy? What's the remedy? I don't want to drift, brother. I don't want to drift and begin to entertain other things of the gospel that aren't true of the gospel. I don't want to begin to drift and to think that it's Jesus plus something else. So, what's the remedy? Well, all of chapter 1, especially, we know that because of the transition here in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, or because of. All of chapter 1 is part of the remedy. Whenever you're drifting from the truth of the gospel, go back and read chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews over and over and over again. Oh, but let us turn in closing to Matthew 22 and review the great parable that was told about the marriage feast. Here's the remedy, brothers and sisters, right here. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Jesus answered and he spake unto them by parables, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Again, He sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, they're being invited to come to the wedding. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come, come unto the marriage. Verse 5. But notice young ones in the church, the response that some made to the king's invitation. They made light of it, meaning they laughed at it, they mocked it, they made light of it. And they went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise, back to his business. And the remnant, the guys that were left around afterwards, verse 6 says, they took the king's servants and entreated them spitefully and murdered them. They slew them. Verse 7, when the king heard there of, he was what? Happy? Indifferent? No, he was angry. He was angry. He invited them to come to the wedding. He asked them. He sent out a call. Come. And some of them slew his own messengers. He was wroth, the text says. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then, saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. The wedding never went anywhere. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as shall ye find bid invite to this marriage." So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all as many as they could find, both bad and good. No respecter of persons. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. He got into the wedding unawares. wasn't supposed to be in the wedding. He was falsely there. And he saith unto him, Friend, he's in the midst of the wedding, guys. Get the picture here. Friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Think of the picture here of the wedding. There are those who were invited to come. They received a wedding garment. They are there. They're rejoicing to be in the wedding. Ah, but there's someone else in the wedding. There's another person in the crowd who looks as though they might or are supposed to be there and belong. But when it's, find, when it's found out that they don't have a wedding garment or they said, oh, it's okay. You can still hang around and be in here. No, no, no. They're bound up and they're casted out, aren't they? Beloved, this is the picture of what we're seeing here back in Hebrews. There are some that the writer of Hebrews is writing to that are in the wedding. They're all gathered around and they're identifying that they're part of the wedding party. But guess what? They really don't have a garment. They never really truly clung to Christ and Christ alone. That's the wedding garment that I'm applying here. And because they don't have Christ and Christ alone, it's Christ and something else. Their wedding garment is no wedding garment at all. And the more that they drift in that air, the more that they lose sight of the truth of the Gospel, that it's faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, They're going to be found out. They'll be found out because they will drift so far to where the wrath, the wrath, the wrathful king, will notice they're not part of the wedding feast. Bind them up, cast them into outer darkness. Beloved, those who are here today hearing this message, can you truly say? That you are depending on Jesus Christ and Him alone for on that great judgment day when you stand before God? Or is it you and Jesus together is why you're going to be accepted by God? You cannot add one thing to the finished work of the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. You come to Jesus Christ as a total dependent, needy sinner who needs to be purged and cleansed from every single wrong thing you have thought, said, or done. And that's where you get the wedding garment, which is his blood soaked garment that gets placed over you. And that's what the king's looking for on that day. He's not looking for Jesus plus you. He's looking for Christ and Christ alone. Have you come to that place? Have you come to that place of seeing your great need of the Savior upon the cross? If you were to be called out of this life today and to stand before God Almighty, would you stand there covered in Christ and His righteousness alone? You don't have to wait. The wedding invitation is going out right now to all hearing this. The wedding invitation is this. Come to Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that He offers through the blood that He shed upon the cross to be the only reason why you should be allowed into heaven on that great day. Well, may the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the consideration that we've given the word here of warning us not to drift from the old, old paths of the Gospel. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and give thanks. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord, at the end of considering these verses, and we ask You, O Father, that You would speak to us, and Lord, ever keep us humble, Father. Keep us humble, Lord, even the very best of us, O oh Father, when we hear these precious truths, can at times, Lord, after many, many repetitions, Father, begin to just kind of grow indifferent to them. Oh, but the the cross and the and the blood and the Savior, oh how we long to know it more and more. Oh to experience it afresh more and more. Oh Father, give us, we pray, a tender heart a sensitive conscience to the things of Christ and the gospel. We pray O oh Father God that your spirit would continually to grow and to sanctify us and as we learn today, oh keep us anchored anchored to Christ and Christ alone. Keep us, we pray O oh God, as we trust in your promises from your word from ever drifting, from ever slipping and floating away. We pray that through your simple and precious means of grace that you will effectively work within our hearts and in our minds despite all of the other things that are working together in unison it seems at times to pull us away from this truth of what the writer of Hebrews expounded upon in chapter 1. Keep us oh, in the safe harbor we pray Father. We are but mere weak and feeble creatures. Preserve us, keep us. Oh, and never forsake or leave us. We love you only because you first loved us. And we pray now as we approach this blessed remembrance of the finished work of Jesus and the Lord's Supper, that it would be a reminder to us today, if any of us in here are drifting, oh, to come back to the cross and Christ alone. We worship you. We thank you. And we ask now your tender blessings upon us in Jesus' name, amen.